Good morning. I'm encouraged by the presence of all of you here this morning. With men, it is impossible. And that comes from the text that Kenny read for us. This statement made by Jesus in the 27th verse is sometimes pulled out of, out of its context to support various impossibilities that men may face. But in this context, Jesus had a very specific impossibility in mind. And I'm going to go, just so it's fresh, as we get into this, Kenny did a good job reading it, but I'm going to read it again. What version were you reading from, Kenny? Uh, New King James. New King James. That's what I have as well. Obviously, I wasn't following along when you did it. I was listening, though. New King James, Mark 10, verses 17 through 27. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. What can we learn from this brief encounter? And just by observation, we see a seemingly very polite respectful and eager young man who leaves Christ and goes away sorrowful. Why? The story makes it clear that he is young. And in Luke's account, in uh, Luke chapter 18 and verse 18, uh, we find out that he's a ruler of some sort, possibly a magistrate or a kind of justice of the peace. And we're told that the young man came running up to Christ and knelt before him in verse 17, indicating a sense of urgency, and he shows respect. And he then shows submissiveness and a willingness to be taught when he addresses Jesus as good teacher. This young man came seemingly not like others who came to tempt Christ, but he wanted to learn from him. We know that he wasn't a Sadducee because it's clear that he believed in eternal life and wanted to attain it. 
an unusual goal in someone of his position and age. A man of wealth will often trust his riches and not be interested in what God has to offer. And of course, we find out, obviously, he did trust in his riches, but he was curious about if there was something he could do, something he could perform to do that, and he wanted Jesus to sort of validate that he did have eternal life secured. This rich young ruler was a very sensible fellow. He knew that surely something must be done to attain this happiness. Eternal life is not just a game of chance or blind fate that you fall into. And Romans 2, 6 through 7 tells us that we're rewarded for our works, good and bad, and that eternal life goes to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immorality. immortality. <clears throat> Christ's response to all of this is very interesting. He first establishes that none are truly good except God, and to him goes all the glory. Was Jesus really saying that he himself was not good? That's what it sounds like, but of course that's not what he was saying. He was making a very important point about man's ability to determine the goodness of anything on his own. Think about what we just talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 3, and 4. Paul says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Then Jesus tells him to keep the commandments, specifically listing the last six of the Ten Commandments, the ones dealing with human-to-human relationships. And, of course, the Jews of the time were well-versed in the mechanics of the first four commandments in terms of the letter of the law. So Christ lists the ones in which they were weakest. It seems so simple, right, his answer? In order to have eternal life, keep the commandments. That's it. Keep the commandments. And that seems to be what he's saying. The young ruler tells Christ that he has kept the commandments since he was a child. What else is there? What else you got? I've, I've done that part of it. What else should I do? And Jesus doesn't contradict him. In verse 21, he says, He looked at him and loved him. Possibly this man was adept at keeping the letter of the law. But he was coming up short and abiding by the spirit of the law. But perhaps Jesus saw that he was sincere in his efforts to abide by those commandments. Whatever the case, Christ does not attempt to sermonize on this point. The way the young man phrased his question, what do I still lack? It it smacks a bit of pride or self-righteousness. In effect, he says... I'm keeping the commandments and have done well in that regard all my life. Show me where I'm coming up short. And he is confident in his righteousness in keeping these commandments. In other words, he wanted Jesus to validate 
that he was doing everything right and that eternal life was surely his. Unlike I would probably do, Christ avoids getting involved in a dispute about this claim, but gets right to the bottom line. The young man's love of the world. He tells him to sell his possessions, give the money away, and follow him as a disciple. But the young ruler was unwilling to do this. His treasure was here on earth. His money clearly exerted a stronger tug on his heart than Christ did. To the young man's credit, he was not hypocritical about it. He didn't pretend that he could do this when he knew that he could not and didn't desire to do that. And he knew what this meant. Christ's seemingly high standard and his own ambitions and desires were incompatible. Being both thoughtful and well-intentioned, he went away sorrowful. What did he possess that had such a hold on him as to make him willing to walk away from eternal life? What was holding him back? What did he really trust in? And I want to suggest to you, and, and we know this uh, from plenty of other Bible examples, but there's nothing spiritually wrong with wealth itself. And we're going to talk a little more about that. The Bible is full of examples of godly men who were very wealthy. And you think of men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Job and David, and we could list others. And we recognize that the love of money is the problem. Is money the root of all evil? We recognize the love of money is the root of all evil. And this certainly applies to us today because we live in a consumer-driven society. The love of money can hold us back too. Advertisements call to us constantly, informing us of needs that we didn't even know that we had. And it's difficult to maintain a proper balance while under such an assault. We may not think of it this way, but it could be considered a blessing not to have great wealth because of the additional stress it can put on our spiritual lives. And we've seen people who have wealth and the stress that it brings, but that's not the point. In verse 23, Jesus declared how hardly... And this is from the American Standard Version. How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? It is important to note that this statement is joined to what has immediately preceded and must not be separated from it. The coming of the rich man to Jesus and what happened between him and the Lord and Jesus' commentary afterward deal with two things. One, the way to salvation, entrance into the kingdom of God. And the second thing, with one great obstacle to salvation, the love of riches. And riches here is sort of put as a um, synecdoche or an epitome 
for other things. It's not just specifically talking about riches, although riches is what's being used here, and we're going to come to find out that could apply to so many other things. The emphasis is on the difficulty that a rich man ever enters the kingdom. The kingdom references the blessings and gifts bestowed by the rule of God's grace in Jesus Christ. The amazement of the Lord's disciples in verse 24, when you read that, it's a little surprising, and it prompts a further discussion and clarification of of the point. In the uh, American Standard Version, the 1901 American Standard Version, the King James Version, and the New King James Version, they properly render a subtle but critical change from his initial declaration to this. Remember in verse 23, Jesus says, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Notice in verse 24, he says, and this is where the American Standard, the King James, and the New King James get it right. In verse 24, he says, How hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. This change brings out the real point of his teaching. The disciples had just witnessed a very rich man decline entrance into the kingdom and fellowship of Jesus. The difficulty to destroy men's trust in riches and his own goodness and to establish its opposite, trust in God's grace, is frequently observed. So just how difficult is illustrated by the further teaching of Jesus in verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. This means simply and exactly what it says. It is impossible for one who trusts in riches not just for one who has riches, but one who trusts in riches, a rich man to enter into the kingdom. There has been, and I'm sure many of you have heard this, and and I believe this uh, to be the correct rendering of this, but uh, um, you decide for yourself. It's my responsibility as a teacher to present what I'm convicted to be true, but if there's a difference of opinion, you know, that you're welcome to that. But I think there's been an unnecessary attempt, and many of you have probably heard this, but that have been made by theologians throughout the years to exchange a less impossible illustration that Jesus probably had in mind. Years ago, a preacher related a story of a gate in the wall around ancient Jerusalem called the Eye of the needle. Many of you have probably heard this, or the needle's eye. This used to be how I thought this passage was to be interpreted because this had been um, re spoken by plenty of other preachers that I heard. But this gate was designed in such a way that it could be used by pedestrians, but not by marauding bandits on their camels. The only way a camel could get through this eye of the needle was to be unloaded and crawl crawl through 
on its knees. And of course, this great story uh, that's been made to sort of make it less impossible has several variations to it, and they've made their rounds over the years. And the spiritual analogies were clear. The camel could go through the eye of the needle, if you're thinking of it in terms of what we just talked about, but only after being stripped of its baggage, its wealth. And that's a good story, and it makes a little bit of sense to look at it that way. But the problem with this story is that it's not true. There's no evidence for that being true. No archaeological or historical evidence for the existence of such a gate. And the story was first told several centuries ago and has been repeated ever since. And I think it's another example of people trying to make Christ's words fit their own concepts of what he meant. Jesus clearly says that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Can that be done? Can a literal camel go through a little bitty needle's eye? Of course not. And that's the point. Think about what he just said. And yet people have tried in vain to make it happen. And some have suggested that there is a misprint in the Greek. The Greek word kamelos, uh, meaning camel, should really be kamelos, meaning cable or rope. But still, passing a rope through a needle's eye is nevertheless impossible. Ah, but what if one uses a six-inch carpet needle and the rope is actually made of camel's hair? Others have suggested that this was an Aramaic pun on the word for a camel and that of a gnat or louse from the Aramaic kalma, meaning vermin or louse. You see, it can become quite ridiculous, and there's a whole bunch of gymnastics done to show this less impossible thing happening. Yeah, sure, I can't, if he meant this and not that. But I want to suggest to you that all this maneuvering is not necessary. Christ was using a hyperbole, just as he did when he spoke of a plank being in one's eye while attempting to remove the splinter in a brother's eye in Matthew 7, 3, and 4. Everyone seems to readily understand that this is an exaggeration, a hyperbole, for effect. Commentators don't claim, well, he really meant a toothpick, not a two-by-four. We don't try to explain that one away. Jesus' hyperbole in Mark 10.25 is easily explained, I believe. The camel was the largest animal regularly seen in Israel, and its contrast with the small size of a needle's eye shows the utter impossibility of the effort to squeeze the former through the latter. In Babylon, where portions of the Jewish Talmud were written, since the elephant was the largest animal, it was substitute for camel in this common aphorism. Why is it that so many seem to want to act as apologists for what Christ really meant in Mark 10? Is it because they secretly or even openly desire wealth and do not want any biblical negativity slowing us down? 
just in case we inherit big bucks from the uncle that we forgot we had, we wouldn't want any spiritual stigma attached to the money. But again, it's unnecessary to reiterate the wealth itself, the money, is not the problem. But is the attachment to it or what it can buy. The impossibility that Jesus here speaks of is without a single exception in the Bible record. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, David, and other rich men of Bible history are not in any sense exceptions of what the Lord now explains. Truly, the impossible becomes possible. The shock of the disciples is a point of easy understanding, really. And when they exclaim, then who can be saved? In verse 26, they correctly expand this view of rich men to include themselves and all others because all men have a longing for riches of some kind. They readily see that according to this teaching of Jesus, no man can be saved. And that is the point that he was trying to get them to see. It is impossible through trust in anything else to be saved. That was the point. So since this surely is not true, they seem compelled to believe that the fault is in what Jesus has spoken. It simply cannot be true. Jesus' disciples were horrified at his words. Who then can be saved, they wondered. And it's very simple. Christ is instructing them that through man's own efforts, and get that, that's the point here, through man's own efforts, no one can be saved. He doesn't mean just the wealthy cannot be saved, but no one can be saved through his money, through his skills, his talents, his intellect, his good looks, or his goodness, his own righteousness. During the time of Christ, the Jews believed that wealth and prosperity were a sign of God's blessing. So the reaction of his disciples is sheer incredulity. Later professing Christians fell into the opposite um, way of thinking by portraying riches as a hindrance, hindrance to salvation, which they can be, but so can many other things. So what if we're considered to be poor by this world? And we somehow, are we somehow better than those with more physical goods? It would be just as dangerous for an underprivileged person to think that he had it made. That his poverty gave him some sort of piety as it would for a rich man to trust in his wealth. We can be tempted from the path of righteousness by just about anything. I, I knew a guy that I, I knew he made good money, but I also knew he was what they call a minimalist. 
and he sort of liked to bring attention to the fact that he didn't spend a lot of money on things. He would wear really shabby shoes and he would wear really shabby clothes. And he took pride in his shabbiness. That can be just as big a deterrence as someone who is trusting in riches. He's trusting in something else. He's trusting in his poverty or perceived poverty as a way of gaining notoriety or respect from from his peers. And maybe you've known somebody by that. But that is he any better than the rich man who is trusting in his riches? And you could name a whole gambit of things that uh, um, cover that sort of attitude. It's easy for us to look at the wealthy and judge them to be unfit for God's kingdom, congratulating ourselves in the process for not having that particular distraction in our lives. While the rich young ruler walked away from Christ, extremely sad that he could not make that leap of faith Is there something in our lives that has the same hold on us? What is the anchor that keeps our spiritual ship from sailing? In 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, Paul writes, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. What caused Demas to leave Paul and Christ? Demas loved the world. The particulars are not divulged here. Whatever it was is of less important than the simple spiritual fact that a camel cannot go through the eye of a needle. Someone who loves the world, whether rich or poor, will not be in God's kingdom. Look at James 4, 4, 1 John 2, 15 through 17 that talk about that. Observe carefully Jesus' assertion in verse 27. With men, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. What is impossible with men? The answer is this, this thing of being saved, of entering into the kingdom of God, impossible. These words of Jesus are like an explanation that forever slams the door on human works or human merit, achievement and the like as giving entrance into the kingdom of God. Man can appeal to no merit on his own as grounds for acceptance with God. So while it is impossible for men to merit their salvation and so save themselves, It is yet not impossible that God shall save them. Even the rich can be saved, provided their trust in riches be abandoned. And that was the whole point of this exchange with the rich young ruler. Provided that their trust in riches be abandoned and trust in God be embraced. And that goes for anything, not just riches. And here is the great truth to be received by this narrative. In reading this, we tend to restrict our understanding to only rich men, which this narrative provides us both a specific example and a warning. But it's critical to remember that the disciples saw this incident as equally condemning them and all of mankind. 
Not because all are rich, but if man's efforts lead only to an impossibility, then all must be lost. Only here do we begin to get the light of the truth. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. Could man save himself by his own good actions, as had been suggested by the admissions of the rich man who had kept God's word from his youth up, then salvation would not be of grace, but of works. But while salvation by works leaves an impossibility, salvation by grace is an ever-present reality with God. For all his life, the rich man in this text had his faith in his riches rather than in God, in his own goodness rather than God's grace. It is this point in particular that has caused so much trouble in Christian theology. When we rightly insist that for faith to be a living, it must be an active faith, which necessitates our striving to do the will of God. We're accused that we believe that one is saved by his own works. This is untrue. While the faith that lives is a faith that strives to obey God, the salvation bestowed by God is never earned in any sense. We recognize that we're broke. On the other hand, a faith that will not obey is as dead as a body without a spirit, like James describes. We must constantly acknowledge that even when one does his best, he is yet unprofitable. Luke 17.10 We'll never be good enough to inherit eternal life. But thank God for the gospel because he is good enough to save us. And that's the gospel message. And that's the message I leave with you this morning. If there is anyone here this morning who has not put their trust in Christ, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's good, but he also says no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he goes on to explain that they shall all be taught of God. There is a teaching that that's the only way that you can come to Christ. He has left us that teaching. If you have come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, not just the Savior, but my Savior, your Savior, if you've come to that conclusion... And you want to be assisted in some way in coming into a right relationship with God. You must first hear the word and be open and receptive to it. If you believe that that's true, then be active in that. Jesus himself said, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Galatians 3.27 says, um, I'm not even going to attempt to quote that now. It's talking about baptism. If you want to come and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, come and be baptized into relationship with him. We want to give you that opportunity to come forward as we stand and sing.